2: welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is episode 3, 2, 1, blast off <laughs> for the week of Sunday, May twenty-second, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulloch. Welcome, Gene.
3: Oh, why did I see that coming?
2: <laughs> you should know me by now. We've done Uh-oh. over 75 episodes together.
3: Yep. Good Good evening, Sawyer. I hope everything's well at your end.
2: It is. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman.
0: And next year, in our process of learning how to count, we'll add a digit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Maybe we'll go up to four. And welcome as well, Gina Hurley.
1: Hey, how are you guys doing tonight?
2: We're our same wacky selves, so just you're going to have to put up with us again. I apologize. Again. <laughs> I know. You should be used to it by now as well. I am. <laughs> All right, so let's get things started. Obviously, our main topic is going to be a three, two, one blast-off that occurred... That was on Monday, actually, which was May sixteenth, two thousand eleven, and that was Three, two,
0: zero and liftoff for the final launch of Endeavor, expanding our knowledge, and expanding our lives in space.
2: The final launch of the space shuttle Endeavor on STS one thirty four, and Talking Space was there to cover it live on Astronomy FM. And uh, I'd say that the launch coverage as well as the launch itself went very well.
3: Yeah, first off, Mark, i got to give you a public shout-out. Um, if it weren't for you and and you a- being able to go ahead and leverage all that technology that you did in order to get our signal out from the Kennedy Space Center, it would not have happened. So, again, you get the gold star for that whole effort. I do really, really appreciate you, you, you going all out for that.
0: My pleasure. Uh, one of those things where... More than once, I held my breath wondering when I set up, if everything was going to be working like it had been the day before when I left, and it did. So uh, thanks to uh, AT&T and for NASA giving us a spot to uh, to get plugged in and, and on the air.
3: And speaking of which, too, I have to go ahead and send out a shout-out to the folks over at Astronomy FM. They, they really, really rolled the dice with us, and allowed us to to use their facilities and and so on. So uh, a big shout-out to Michael Forrester and the folks over at Astronomy FM. I really do appreciate uh, everything that you uh, did for us.
2: Yes, a special thank you to Michael Forrester, who I coordinated this entire event with and drove insane for two straight weeks. (laughs) So I have to thank him definitely for putting up with us in terms of getting out all the promotions and actually helping us do our first ever live event with the entire team of Talking Space. And uh, it, it turned out phenomenal. Over 8,000 of you turned in for the live launch itself, and even more joined us in total. But for launch, we had over 8,000 of you listening with us, and we appreciate every single one of you. So thank you.
3: And another shout-out to everybody who participated in the event uh, as far as getting that out there. you know, Again, the team here, uh, you guys did wonderful. And uh, everybody uh, that also came on with us. Uh, really do appreciate your time, and uh, again, a huge thank you for spending the time with us. We really do appreciate it.
2: I guess that just means that we're going to have to do it again.
3: I guess so there, Sawyer.
2: <laughs> but in the meantime, we are going to have to wait on that mission, which, by the way, the next mission, Atlantis STS-135, does have a new official launch date of July 8th at 11.40 a.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. Just a note to throw in there. But let's go back and focus on Endeavor after she launched on May 16th. Couple days later, dock with the International Space Station, and uh, that was followed by a momentous event, right, Gene?
3: Um, it's yeah, actually two things. First, the launch itself, Endeavour, was only visible, Mark, and and help me out with this. Um, I've heard it for about twenty-two seconds, uh, because she just really, really got lost in in, in the cloud deck, correct?
0: Yeah, there was a little bit of visual, and then a little bit audible, and then it's like, okay, what do we do the rest of the day? Yeah. <laughs>
3: The uh, although uh, the I've seen some photographs from from uh, KSC and when Endeavor sort of sent it into the cloud there there was this huge glow almost from from uh, from the engines that was just absolutely phenomenal. Did you got? Did you were you able to catch that at all? Did did that actually happen? You know, I, I know it was probably a split second. Didn't see it. Ah, oh, darn. We'll
2: post a picture on the show notes though of that because it is a spectacular image.
3: Yeah, it it, it really is. Um, by the way mark
2: i have to give you a a shout out as well because having seen one launch one thing that is indescribable and really hard to get is the sound of launch it's totally different when you hear it in person versus when you hear it on tv it sounds nothing alike however when we launched we didn't have any, the only NASA audio we had was the commentator, so we didn't have any of the launch audio itself. You left your microphone on, and that was the closest I've ever heard to actually hearing a shuttle launch as if we were right near it. This uh, endeavor begins a heads-down position on course heads for down a position. 1. 6 degree, 136
0: by 36 statute mile orbit. The
2: sound we're hearing is from Mark's microphone live from the Kennedy Space Center, so that is live audio as it occurs. You only hear, right here on the Stony It was a phenomenal sound, and I can't thank you enough for doing that.
0: Well, I guess I need to try and top that, and uh, if I wasn't so uh, far behind on the important things, I would have checked my recording, which was a very high-quality, high-resolution, high-bit-rate uh, audio recording. I don't even know what I got because I haven't checked it yet, but I'll do that between now and the next show.
2: But it was so loud because during the launch coverage, I listened to the replay of it. I was attempting to talk over it. It was so loud that it actually cut out my voice instead of my voice cutting out it. I know, something actually cutting me off. Uh, <laughs> <it's> <laughs> concept. So the launch itself was phenomenal for the couple of seconds that it was, and uh, once it got into orbit, it made history.
3: It certainly did, Sawyer. First, the first order of business after uh, after docking uh, with the International Space Station was to get uh, ELC-3, uh, the Express Logistics Carrier. This uh, particular, all it really is, is a a small pallet with a lot of spare parts uh, that the space station is going to need. Uh, It was packed up, thinking that, okay, what spares do you think we are going to need in the next year? And uh, uh, the uh, shuttle Endeavour was able to go ahead and set that up. That was that was the first order of business after, of course, the, uh, uh, the safety brief for the crew. Um, the next step was plugging in the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, which a lot of people have been extraordinarily excited about. Um, essentially, Mark Kelly calls uh, AMS the uh, uh, the scientist and Hubble the photographer, um, but uh, Within, I guess, if, if I recall from uh, Dr. Ting's press conference, um, with almost within an hour or a couple hours, uh, Dr. Ting was saying it's, it was late. He really wasn't paying attention to the clock. He was paying attention more to the data. Uh, they were starting to get you know thousands of hits on all the detectors. So um, AMS is going to be, it looks like it's going to be an unqualified success. A lot of people are very anxious too to find out what uh, AMS is going to be able to tell us and it should be really, really amazing. So yeah, indeed the future is going to be very, very interesting for, for AMS and we're all going to be very, very eager to see what uh, AMS discovers. Uh, we'll will go ahead and rewrite the astronomy books for, for, for years to come. Uh, so uh, both uh, the main objectives were completed within the first couple of days of the flight. Uh, also, during the rendezvous, um, the uh, the, storm, uh, the storm system, which we profiled on the, uh, the last show, was activated for a little while to get some data, and uh, uh, the storm, again, is a sort of a LIDAR system. Um, Device that will go ahead and be incorporated into the next generation of spacecraft. Uh, the idea first was to initially put that into the uh, Orion spacecraft that Lockheed Martin was building, that was going to be the follow on to the shuttle. But since the uh, commercial stuff has sort of uh, taken uh, precedence, um, Lockheed Martin is still pursuing the Orion project as part of uh, the commercial uh, efforts and is hoping too that they will sell this particular. Um, tracking system to other individuals that might be interested in making spacecraft to dock with the International Space Station or dock with other spacecraft. Uh, But Storm, again, um, worked exceptionally well, and the folks over at Lockheed are extraordinarily happy about the data they got uh, during docking, so I should go ahead and point that out.
2: And I believe during uh, your special episode number 320, you outlined Storm a little bit as well, right?
3: Yeah, that's, that's right, sir. So if anybody's interested uh, to uh, to go ahead and, and download uh, Episode 320, uh, they will get uh, the information on STORM directly from the folks that designed it. Uh, so if you want to learn more about what this particular device does, by all means, um, go ahead and download that. Uh, essentially what, what STORM is, it's a new docking guidance system. Uh, and uh, I believe, too, it's got far more abilities um, than uh, uh, the current systems. I think its range, uh, the acquisition range that Storm can pick up another, another vehicle is about 20,000 feet. And uh, the folks over at NASA considered that to be very impressive because I think the, the, the current ones is – I forget exactly what, what the current uh, uh, distance is for the current – Docking systems, but I know it's it's not twenty thousand. So they they can get good data beginning at twenty thousand feet as far as distance and things like that. So that's that's that that's unprecedented. So storm worked worked extraordinarily well. Um, I guess the next point of business was uh, the uh, uh, the first of the uh, four spacewalks that are being planned. Again, these are EVAs that will be the final uh, EVAs performed by uh, by shuttle astronauts. Ever so, this is kind of, you know, the first of the, the you know, the beginning of, of the uh, essentially the end. Um, the primary objectives uh, for uh, EVA one, which were performed by uh, Drew Feustel and uh, Greg Shamatov, with uh, Mike Fink being the uh, uh, EVA chore- choreographer, uh, were to uh, retrieve uh, a materials, what, what's called a Missy experiment or Materials International Space Station experiment. Um, 7A and 7B which I believe were left behind by STS-129 so they want to go ahead and pick those off of uh, the the ELC-2 which is where these these two experiments were sitting and replace it that with um, with Missy 8 which they are bringing on board Um, they were to install a new crew and equipment translation aid or a CETA cart on on the S3 truss this is again is essentially a tool shed uh, place to uh, to just keep uh, some tools on hand uh, for uh, for spacewalks and for repairs, um, and to install a external wireless communications antenna. Now uh, we were live tweeting that. If anybody's interested, they can go back and take a look at the t- talking space feed and. And see the uh, the play-by-play for that, but uh, everything went exceptionally well for EVA one. Uh, the only little glitch that they had was a um, a CO2 sensor on uh, Greg Chamitoff's suit apparently went out, which caused a little bit of a um, concern and cut short the EVA, but not by much. I think it was I think the EVA was supposed to go uh, six hours thirty minutes, it actually went six hours nineteen minutes. So uh, again, not a not a huge deal and. Everything went, uh, you know, again, uh, EVA 1 went, went extraordinarily well. EVA 2 um, occurred early in the morning this morning, uh, and it is Sunday, uh, May 22nd, as we're recording this. The uh, EVA crew was, again, Drew Foistel and Michael Fink, with uh, Greg Shamatoff being the EVA chore- choreographer on this one. Um, which also, too, this required some robotics, and Katie Coleman and uh, uh, the pilot uh, Greg Johnson uh, we were also uh, at the helm for the robotic o- operations here. Anyway, um, the objectives for EVA-2, uh, they were going to you know, get the cooling loops, um, ammonia, on, ammonia fill, and, and cleaned all up. That was, again, the ammonia is uh, used for coolant on board the International Space Station. Uh, again, they were having to deal with those infamous quick disconnects that uh, plagued us over the summer, and uh, gosh darn it, they worked for a change. Uh, you know, the quick disconnect wasn't an oxymoron in this case. Um, the, uh, they had to go ahead and lubricate the uh, port solar alpha rotary joint, or, uh, or SARGE as it's called. Um, the, uh, this is the uh, device that goes ahead and points the uh, solar panels on the International Space Station toward the sun so this way they can go ahead and uh, get uh, the uh, maximum amount of exposure. Uh, so you want to make sure those things are are fully operational. Uh, the other um, points were to install a special purpose dexterous manip- manipulator camera cover that uh, and uh, or this was basically on the, uh, the Dexter uh, robotic arm. Also to go ahead and lubricate some latches on Dexter and and install a a grapple bar stowage beam on the uh, on the s1 truss Uh, everything again went okay to the point when we got to the sarge that's when sort of things kind of unraveled just a little bit Uh, mike fink was removing some of the covers on there and noticed all of a sudden things were not as secure as he had hoped or he was having problems removing bolts and um, discovered too that uh, some washers that were supposedly supposed to be circular seated on the on this thing on these covers were actually oval shaped which probably means you were you know these things were stripped and uh, had some uh, hard time too trying to keep some some bolts together because um, you don't want you don't want anything falling into the sarge mechanism because again it's 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 a uh, it's like a, almost like the interior of a Best way I can I can picture it, and from what I saw on the uh, uh, on some of the drawings, I was able to to look at. It looks like almost the interior of a of an old clock, the way this thing thing is configured, where you've got all these you know gears and things like that. So, last thing you want are bolts or washers or anything like that floating in there. And uh, I believe four bolts almost floated away, and Mike Fank, God bless him, went ahead and grabbed, uh, grabbed these, uh, these bolts as they were about ready to, to float right into the mechanism. And uh, that was no small feat to do with, uh, with those EMU gloves, um, but he managed to, to do that. And, uh, but um, they were able to go ahead and lubricate the joints that they could. I believe they only got to four of the planned six. Uh, and they're not going to go back to, uh, to that site on, on this particular mission. Um, they'll probably have to go ahead, sit back, and punt. And I believe one of the covers um, they actually brought into the ISS to go ahead and examine because I think they were having some hard time putting that back. So they are going to – My, I have to correct myself. They are going to visit the site, but they're just not going to lube it. They're going to put this cover back on and they figured they can probably go ahead and keep the cover off for um, at least until EVA four, which is when I think they want to replace the cover. So, but all in all, um, not a bad uh, not a bad day in space today. Uh, the, um, the EVA went extraordinarily well, but I also think too, if I recall, this was the Sixth longest EVA in in shuttle history. I'm trying to go ahead and look up my my numbers right now because I remember live tweeting them, and I'm trying to I'm trying to pull that those numbers up. The uh, EVA today was about eight hours seven minutes, um, and it is the sixth longest in history. Uh, this brings up the uh, the total time and support of ISS activities uh, as far as uh, extra vehicular activities is concerned to 800. And I'm sorry, 988 hours and 19 minutes. It looks like too. With the uh, next two EVAs, we might actually break the uh, the 1,000 hour mark on uh, on uh, EVAs for uh, for um, for ISS support using the shuttle. Uh, I think
1: you have to pause and appreciate for a minute just how long a time that is. Yeah. Eight plus hours. Now, you imagine if you were working a job, say, I don't know, retail, where you're on your feet, eight plus hours. You get a break. These guys don't. They don't get to go back inside, take their helmet off, wipe their brow. And just how difficult everything is, even though everything's so well rehearsed, so well coordinated, but and, and so well practiced, but still... Everything in zero gravity is so much more difficult than it is, you know, with gravity and an orientation of, okay, I left my my screwdriver on my tool belt, and oh, okay, now it's floating behind me, and to grip gloves with those fingertips that they have to manipulate, and just the, I've heard about astronauts complain about how tired their hands are when they get inside after an EVA, just because it's such an intense workout, so, I mean, that is just, the fitness that requires to pull that off is amazing. I, I think they should get kudos for that.
3: I have to agree with you there, Gina, and that's why I was I was pointing out the the dazzling achievement that Mike Fink did in grabbing all those bolts using. Uh, the uh, the suit he was in, and those gloves are not really designed to do that. And I think the EVA officer um, at the uh, the press conference basically said that that is probably you know the the limit of of what you can grab in those gloves. And for him to do that that quickly, wow mean, that was no small achievement. So, you know, again, hats off. And just another plug on on uh, show 320 too. If anybody wants to learn more about the uh, the spacesuits, we talked to one of the engineers that uh, helps maintain and, and the uh, the current uh, shuttle uh, shuttle uh, uh, EVA suit. And uh, we'll also talk about a little bit too about the future uh, designs for future suits. Because Gina, again, you pointed out. Uh, astronauts have complained about uh, their hands and so on again you've got to go ahead and do glove checks on on these things to make sure that there's no punctures or anything like that and if you listen folks are uh, kind of attuned to listening to uh, extravehicular activities in the shuttle era they realize that every so often um, a glove check is required now to make sure that these gloves are in good shape But again, um, it looks like we're going to probably reach the 1,000-hour mark on this flight uh, in support of the International Space Station. Uh, This was the 116th – just for folks that are interested in in statistics – this was the 116th spacewalk from uh, ISS airlocks, and um, I believe this was, again, the the second EVA for uh, STS-134. So again, we're looking for the next next two EVAs. I think the next one is planned for this coming Tuesday morning. Um, the objectives there are to install and hook up a uh, power data cable, grapple fixture on, excuse me on the Zaria module. Install a uh, video. Vid- I can't speak anymore, folks. I'm sorry. Install a video signal cover on Zarya and install jumper cables between the Harmony node and the Unity node and the Zaria module. I believe this might be a that might be an exercise too. And and folks, you know, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but I think we we had had some plans to do that at one point too, where that was that was also being worked. On one of the uh, the flights or, or or something, as I kind of recall hearing hearing something like that, and I believe that EVA is also scheduled to go six hours and thirty minutes, um, and the final EVA of the mission, um, again by uh, Fink and uh, Shamatov, with uh, Drew Feustel being the uh, the IV or the in- intravehicular crew member. Um, they are going to stow the Orbiter Boom Sensor System on the board truss. This will essentially, uh, this will uh, mark the retirement of the OBSS as far as a being a, uh, a shuttle device, and uh, will uh, start its new life as basically an arm extender for uh, for Canada Arm Two should it be needed in the future. Um, they're going to swap grapple fixtures on the boom and then replace i'm sorry release expandable uh diameter fixtures on on a spare uh special purpose dexterous manipulator arm or dexter apparently they're going to go ahead and make sure that dexter has got some spares and and make sure things are 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 good to go with that if 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 dexter needs a spare arm in the future um so you know those are the uh that that's what's coming uh this week and uh if uh, you folks are uh, insomniacs and want to go ahead and spend, watch the EVA, uh, tune in to NASA television or uh, tune in to uh, net, NASA TV on the net, and, and we'll you know go ahead and take a look. But, of course, we'll give you a recap next week as far as the uh, the activities on EVAs 3 and 4.
2: Can I point something out that's just a scary thought? Sure. When it comes to the EMUs, the extravehicular mobility units that are used for the shuttle, Mm-hmm we are only going to see about twelve to sixteen more hours of them ever and then we will never see one of those used again with the space shuttle program
3: well with the shuttle program yeah but i i still think you're going to still see the emu being leveraged on the space station if you're going to go out through uh, through the quest airlock on, on the u.s. side right but- i mean
2: through the space shuttle it's the, these are the last two scheduled spacewalks by a space shuttle crew
3: yeah, and, and Gina, again, you you meant you spoke up too to to the training involved and how intense the training is to perform one of these. Um, we're going to lose that, I and mean, we're not going to lose. You know, I mean, we we, we saw what happened the summer when the um, uh, the coolant system did fail. I mean, we did do an, do an EVA without shuttle sitting there, but it it was unrehearsed, and um, the the two uh, the two folks. Uh, that went out there really really worked extraordinarily hard to do that but it wasn't something that was choreographed several times on the ground um what you get with shuttle is you get a crew that has basically done these evas over at the uh uh neutral buoyancy facility in in uh, in houston with their eyes closed so you're not you're going to lose that 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 finally honed Spear after after STS 134, and and you, you will still have trained crews, you will still have some great EVAs going forward, but you're going to lose that intensity of training. So not only are you going to lose the upmass, but you're also going to lose the uh, the uh, the training here. So that's you know again something else to look at post shuttle.
2: That's what I'm going to use as an excuse to stay up till two in the morning to watch these. <sighs>
3: Yeah, definitely. If you don't have your um, have your DVR going, please.
2: Anything else on STS-134, which by the way is scheduled to land June 1st, I believe.
3: Yeah, there are there is there is a couple of things. One, um, I, I had observed during ascent uh, on the live show that I didn't see any any impact. Apparently, there was uh, there were several areas of interest on the underside of Endeavor that the uh, the bar pitch maneuver. Had um, had uh, uh, uncovered, better known as
2: the RPM or the
3: backflip. Right. Thank you, Sawyer. Um, and uh, uh, there were several areas of interest that were eventually cleared, but one area, and Sawyer helped me out here where it was. I know it was near uh, not, uh, not the body flap. It was near uh, one of the uh, the Avalons on the uh, on uh, on Endeavor.
2: I'll have to get back to you on that in a couple of minutes
3: right um, but uh, it was near that it was near that that end section and there's a lot of structural stuff back there so um, after some deliberation I guess uh, it was decided by the mission management team headed by Leroy Kane to go ahead and, and take a look at that underside area um, uh just to make sure that things are on the up and up and things are, are good to go with that particular tile.
2: And by and the it, way, Gene, it was uh, on the right side inboard elevon or wing flap.
3: Right. Okay, then I was right. Um, and thanks thanks for letting me know exactly where it was. Welcome. Um, anyway, the... Um, So I believe uh, they did a focused inspection, I believe it was uh, as we record this on Saturday. Uh, And that is not a small task either uh, because of where exactly this thing is. I mean, there was some – you've really got to get under there with the OBSS. And and doing so, you kind of run the risk of of hitting the orbiter yourself as you're trying to go ahead and examine this. But uh, thanks to the folks doing the robotics on board, uh, I don't know exactly – do not recall uh, the crew that, that the crew members that actually did that but uh, nice touch guys um, you, they they were able to go ahead and get some really good photo- photography uh, the ground from that photography was able to go ahead and do a 3d rendering plus a few other um, pieces of analysis and uh, uh, the mission management team again headed by Leroy Kane and I'm saying this for I'm saying mentioning him for a reason Um decided that uh, indeed this is something that we can live with and Endeavour was cleared for uh, for entry. Uh, the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm basically specifying who this really was is if uh, folks remember their history, Le- Leroy Cain was the uh, uh, ascent and re-entry flight director for STS-107 so he knows, he's seen what happens when complacency uh, kind of sort of uh, takes, rears its ugly head and uh, uh, is, was not going to allow that to, to happen again, and uh, they they did their due diligence again. This is this was something that I believe was found almost in the same area too on um, on one of Endeavor's previous flights. I believe that was uh, STS 118, and um, I think STS 121 also encountered something very similar. And oddly enough, Mark Kelly was uh, the pilot for that mission. So. Um, uh, again, Endeavour is cleared to to for reentry. All our t- all the, uh, the all the thermal protection system is is good to go.
1: Now, I guess I just have to say I'm a bit amazed that, <clears throat> and I know there's no more external tanks, but to fly 135 and they don't have that launch on need. I understand the astronauts. If there was a problem that wouldn't allow them to reenter, they'd cycle down off the Soyuz. Spacecrafts, But to have a crew of four and only four versus the usual seven, it's going to take a long time. Those people could be stuck on that space station for a really long time. It just seems to me like, I don't know, if it seems to me like 135 was a good possibility for a long enough time where potentially they could have ordered another tank, had Endeavor land safely, and just keep it available for launch on need just in case, but... I guess that's that's the way they're going without it, without that safety net, with that plan in place. It's just um I don't know. It seems a little odd.
3: Yeah, the whole idea um would be if Atlantis did suffer some sort of hit where um uh you know, where she could not come home. The uh, the idea would be to go ahead and have the Atlantis crew fly back home on a Soyuz, and you'd have to go ahead and arrange with with the Russians to go ahead and have that happen. Um, but I guess they figured it was a uh, a reasonable risk to go ahead and, and allow STS-135 to fly basically without a net because we had been doing it for so long. Um, if if you look at you know the the shuttle history pre-107 you know there really wasn't a launch on need orbiter standing by uh that was a requirement of the columbia accident investigation board that a launch on need orbiter be on standby i mean i don't know exactly how quickly an orbiter could be turned around in in the event of an emergency and if there was one uh what you know what vessel, you know how quickly this thing could be turned around but uh Unfortunately, you're right, Gina. You know, we don't not we do not have our spare tire with 135, so it's a bit of a, roll, a bit of a roll of the dice.
2: We'll see. I mean, they've all been molded for their Soyuz seat cushions and everything. So, I mean, if a worst comes to worse, at least there's a problem. They have a backup, but let's just hope that there isn't a problem in the first
3: place. I expect to see Atlantis um, out on the runway after a successful mission um, on STS 135.
2: By the way, they did mark the runway where Discovery landed,
3: right? Yes, they did, and they'll probably do the same thing with Endeavour, and they'll probably do the same thing with Atlantis once they come home. Hey, Mark, there's also a very interesting thing that's going to be happening over at the the Kennedy Space Center, too, if I'm not mistaken, when when Endeavour comes back.
0: Atlantis is due to roll out at 8 p.m. on May 31st. Endeavour is due to land... At uh, somebody tell me the time, it's so dark, something. I think it's
3: 2:30. I think it's 2:30 in the morning on the right. first.
0: And then, of course, at dawn, Atlantis will be out on the pad. So we'll have uh, two separate shuttles being moved at the same time. Uh, Endeavor, of course, will be being towed back to the OPF. Uh, several hours after its landing so there'll be a lot of activity it's possible because there's different crews that are part of each operation
3: hey jana just something that's occurred to me too you were talking about the loss of a lot of you know a lot of ability before um the uh, the photography analysis that is needed to go ahead and take a look at these tiles Mm -hmm. you're not going you're going to lose that you're going to lose those people too and this this team has come a long i mean <laughs> they talked about during that during that the, that uh during the briefing um where you know they've come a long way since sts 114 when they first had to do this and now you're splitting up that team which has this incredible ability um right. for uh for uh photographic interpretation yeah so, so you know, again, another thing that we're gonna lose.
2: Well,
1: maybe they're not too concerned if they're gonna lose it if we're heading back to the world of capsules.
3: Well, we mean we may one configuration really isn't, uh the Dream Chaser. So yeah. um we'll have to just, you know, take a wait and see, but it's it's kinda sad that again we keep seeing more and more ability getting getting torn away from the US space program, which which is kind of disconcerting.
1: Right. No, I know. I know, but I mean, there's really no replacement for experience, but I would just like to think that there's a lot of other motivated and best and bright people about to graduate from engineering school, be it their bachelor's or master's, that would be chomping at the bit to get here with another whole... Different perspective from their younger generation in terms of technology and ideas and creativity and why you know just sort of a well why can't we do that attitude so let's not just count them out yet you know I, I put a lot of faith in stock into the grad the graduating classes of this month I think this is a generation that is going to help solve a lot of problems or at least that's my hope so um, you know this seems to be a generation where um they have higher values than just materialistic things and you know potentially uh, that will carry forth in their desire to explore other worlds and uh take care of our own
3: which might be a great lead in for the next story it is in fact a great lead in to
2: the next story which was a recent hearing at the US Senate Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation there were a couple of special guests from NASA who came in and gave their Opinion on uh, some national security things as well as continuing scientific advancements in space.
3: Yeah, indeed. Um, One of the uh, participants was uh, Dr. Christopher Chiba, who was uh, a member of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. Uh, Another gentleman was uh, uh, Frank Slazer, who is the vice president of – Uh, The Aerospace Industries Association and another familiar name to uh, folks in the the space industry, uh, Frank Culbertson, former astronaut, delivered some testimony to this uh, particular hearing. And again, this was to to just sort of uh, drive home the importance of of space-derived technologies on the national economy. But it was also a bit of a forum to kind of shine the light a little bit on uh, the flexible path uh, mode that apparently we are going to take um, although we're not even too sure I'm I'm not even too sure we're we're even going to be touching that but uh, uh, during the testimony uh, Dr. Dr. Chiba was basically saying that uh, the way Constellation was going it just was not sustainable and the idea was to go ahead and have something that indeed could be sustained over a long period of time. Uh, the, the, the feeling was among everyone that served on the Augustine Commission two years ago was that this particular flexible path was probably the best way to go, uh, not only from a sustainability uh, point, but also from an affordability point. Um, uh, in order to – like, for instance, in order to uh, – uh, to go on to the next step, NASA basically has to go ahead and stop flying, uh, which is why the shuttle program is coming to an end. Um, yeah. uh, you know, Also, Dr. Chiba had indicated that NASA during Apollo is, was spending, what, almost, I believe the number he came up was uh, $10 billion on uh, human spaceflight. Um, can we sustain something like that? Uh, and in the eyes of everybody that participated on the Augustine Commission two years ago, the answer was no. That some other new model had to be had to be devised, and thus the uh, the plug-in for uh, for flexible path. Um, but one of the things that that came up during the hearing was uh, uh, Frank Culbertson, and he uh, was relating how. Uh, space technology steps in not just in a in, in a you know commercial and civilian way, but um, basically mentioned too that without space technology, he didn't think that we'd probably be able to get Bin Laden the way we did. Um, but one of the things that he did mention was uh, in in his testimony was the day uh, uh, on um, when he was on board the International Space Station. Day was September 11th, 2001, and he was just uh, relaying down um, a medical report. Uh, he went ahead and did a full medical workup, you know, a full medical exam on on, on his uh, his two crewmates and uh, himself, and was just relaying that data down. And the doctor at the time uh, basically said, "You know, Frank, hey, we're having a bad bad day down here," and essentially informed. Uh, Uh, Mr. Culbertson what was going on Um, he said that uh, he was able to go ahead and grab a a video camera so he knew that this current pass was going to take them right over the New England area uh, which would bring um, New York to bear and uh, uh, took took some amazing photographs of the carnage that was going on below and uh, Unbeknownst to him at the time uh, that he had his uh, video going, he actually recorded um, the North Tower falling down uh, from where he was from 200 miles up and recorded the plume. So it was it, that testimony, knowing, you know, knowing some acquaintances that were touched by this, and uh, there's a lot of people here in the New York metropolitan area, you know, who know folks who were. Um, it, it, it gave me goosebumps listening to that testimony, but um, Colbertson was basically indicating that uh, he, he was actually surprised that uh, when he talked about NASA and its budget and so on to other people, he thought that uh, – the, the, he got the impression from these people that uh, they all thought that NASA NASA's budget was like 10 percent of the nas- national budget. And he said if only that were true, um, not a lot of people – Realize that it is less than 0.5% of the national budget um and uh that that part of it just completely amazed him he also indicated that uh um he's a little he's he's a he's a supporter of 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 this commercial implementation that that is uh, going ahead he believes that uh, the ISS should be visited as many times as possible with as many vehicles as possible. Um, he's uh, uh, also indicating, too, that you know he closed his, his opening remarks saying that uh, great nations do great things, and we should continue, uh, which also brings to mind uh, uh, Mark Kelly's commentary just before Flying Endeavor um, after uh, Mike Leinbach cleared him for launch. Uh, sorry, you've, you've got that, right? if you can run that for me
2: No problem As Americans we endeavor to build a better life than the generation before and we endeavor to be a
0: united nation in these efforts we are often tested this mission represents the power of teamwork commitment and exploration it is in the DNA of our great country to reach for the stars and
3: explore we must not stop Yeah when Mark Kelly said you know those those words that uh, exploration is in the the DNA of of this nation and we must not stop And it it essentially echoed uh, Mr. Colbertson's views views as well. Um, uh, Another gentleman that was uh, there, Elliot Pullum, um, again pointed out that um, Telstar, which was the first communication satellite, is now responsible for uh, satellite television and satellite radio Um, because, uh, because NASA had to devise better... Uh, docking and un- undocking mechanisms. We now have LASIK technology that's that's going ahead and and uh, taking care of vi- uh, you know, people's vision. Um, he went he went on to. Um, uh, to just point out a lot of other things, you know, about uh, satellite television too. We nobody would have that. So, you know, guys, um, I, this is something I, I love getting in arguments with 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 folks that don't think space technology touches them, as they sit there answering their telephones, listen, watching their GPS. You know, um, it, it, it was just all of that. But um, a lot of a lot of uh, questions from. Uh, uh, both uh, Senator Nelson and uh, Sen- Senator Hutchinson were still kind of, you know, sort of, and I don't want to say anti commercial, but they were kind of sort of trying to get to the, the nitty gritty as to why this implementation should be the best. And th- again, uh, doc- Dr. Chibo was saying, look, this is the most sustainable, this is what the country can afford to do right now. And plus, by doing um, by allowing commercial companies, allowing creating a much closer partnership, we can bring the costs down, and hopefully be able to go ahead and do do better and greater things with our U.S. space program. So that kind of sort of remains to be seen. But uh, that was essentially the gist of the uh, of the hearing. And uh, uh, Sawyer, I think what we'll do in, in, in the show notes, we'll put because I do have PDFs of the. Uh, uh, opening remarks by uh, by three of the uh, the folks uh, that te- that testified, so I'd like to go ahead and put those in the show notes if you don't want.
2: I will do my best to get those in the show notes. I'll make that work somehow. Alright, and with that, I think we'll move on to a fun one next. And that would be a story that came out of Lake Elsinore, California. A woman on the internet was selling a moon rock. Already, I know that some people that are out there are going, huh, there's something wrong here. Yeah,
3: because my eyebrow just went up. <laughs>
2: That's because a moon rock is considered government property, which means that unless you're a part of the government, you can't own one. And in fact, an individual can't own it. It's the government that owns it. So uh, let's just say a red flag was raised there. So she had the moon rock and she was trying to sell it online and she had interest from somebody. So uh, she was selling it for the low, low price of $1.7 million for a couple of grams. And so they said, we'll meet up at uh, Denny's Restaurant in Lake Elsinore, California, and we will make the sale. So, the two of them met to make the sale. The difference was, it wasn't just two of them. It was the woman, and once she produced The Rock, it was undercover officials from the government as well as NASA investigators who came and arrested her and then took confiscation of The Rock. Is that not a story right out of science fiction?
3: Oh, boy. I, I'm just picturing this. You're, you're, you're trying to buy a moon rock at a Denny's restaurant? Did I hear that right?
2: $1.7 million on the table, yes.
3: Oh, boy. Okay. And um,
2: there's a quote from somebody at the restaurant who said, I had no idea what was happening.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so this transaction happens, and all of a sudden, this individual finds 40 newfound friends by her side, huh? Um. Wow, first off, yeah you're right. So nobody can own a moon rock. I mean I know lunar samples have been presented to you know astronauts and, and other individuals as thank yous. They actually do not have them in their possession. According to law, they have to go off on display somewhere at some museum or, or something like that. but no single entity can own a lunar sample. Um. So, uh, did they ever? Sawyer, did they actually establish that this was really the real deal? That 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 this was some sort of lunar sample that got out of the LRL or the Lunar Receiving Lab over in Houston?
2: They actually did not yet. They're going to obviously have to do some tests on that because uh, I was reading an article in an interesting story is that uh, <laughs> they don't even have accounts of all of them for the Apollo 11 samples. Of the 134 rocks that were uh, distributed, only a dozen of them are actually accounted for in any official capacity. That's scary. In fact, one of the rocks was given to a museum in the Netherlands, and uh, in 2009 they did a test on it. It was a petrified piece of wood.
3: You've got to be kidding! So somebody, so somebody, you know, along the line somewhere pilfered it. Is that it? Uh,
2: I. I can't quite tell, but it could turn out to be an earth rock. who knows, but uh no matter what for her even attempting that, she's in trouble
3: yeah, um, did they say what the the you know what the charges were and 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 as far as uh how long she's she's looking at as far as if, if she's convicted, how long she's looking at in the slammer? <sighs>
2: It's unclear at this point. There are no official charges that have been announced or anything, but uh, I'm not expecting it to be too
3: light. Nah, no, I don't think so either.
2: So yeah, note to anybody out there: if you have a moon rock, return it now before you get in trouble.
3: <laughs> can you picture that? I know they've got amnesty for you know for 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 tax evasion or you know pay your pay the full bill or pay whatever you can and, and no questions asked. Can you picture that call? You know, uh, for those of you harboring lunar samples, you know, if you come forward now, no charges will be pressed. And that's just—I mean, that's surreal. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the
2: typical size for one is point zero five grams, which is a little less than the size of a grain of rice.
3: Real and and, and did they say exactly the size of this particular one that, that this individual was trying to uh, to pawn off or or, or sell?
2: they did not but we are assuming that it is a relatively small piece because they don't have anything larger than that really for Apollo 11 however for some of the Apollo 17 rocks there are 1.1 gram pieces on average wow so yeah who knows what the actual size of the piece
3: is wow
2: there are too many scary facts in this story not just the fact that it was a possible possibly trying to sell a moon rock 1.7 million dollars in a restaurant and uh, you know not a fancy restaurant or anything, you know. Uh, Denny's <laughs> and how many moon rocks are actually missing that we didn't know about?
3: That yeah, and now that that's the crime right there. How many moon rocks are there that we didn't know about?
2: I mean we have space rocks all over the place. In my room alone where, where I'm recording this, I have three meteorite pieces. Different story when you have Moon Rocks where the total samples from all of the missions was between 270 and 300
3: rocks. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when – when like like for instance, we had um, – well, we are going to have in the not-too-distant future uh, Jeff Notkin from uh, the Meteorite Man on with us. And, uh, you know, you, you can't kind of equate um, – you know finding a meteorite with with a lunar sample directly taken by one of the Apollo astronauts I mean the American people paid for that rock to come back to earth so in essence it belongs to the American government and not you know the not a, a single individual whereas you can buy and sell meteorites it's not a big deal
2: I have a feeling we'll have that uh, meteorite men' show coming up next week yay because this week we have another special show coming out with our special AMS specialists.
3: Yep, we've got we've got um, uh, a, an interesting little show on AMS coming up, and uh, coupled with uh, uh, another journey I took while at the Kennedy Space Center. I wanted to get that in on uh, uh, show 320, but it would have been way too long. So it, it's going to be a bit of a standalone. Show I'm not going to spoil it, but we did go ahead and – or the press pool did anyway. We did get the opportunity to tour the um, Space Exploration Technologies or SpaceX facility out at uh, Launch Complex 40, which is uh, currently owned by the uh, US Air Force. SpaceX has a five-year lease on that area, and they're trying to see if they can expand that to a 25-year lease, um, just as the you know, the five-year lease is going. But that we'll, we'll cover that in, in, in the show, so uh, stay tuned.
2: Exactly, because we have one last story to continue from last episode, which we met as a group of four, and we were talking about some uh, brave stuffonauts. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a name for them. Stuffonauts? That, <laughs> that would be Camilla SDO, Astro Fuzz, and Sky Blue, who participated in the BTS-1 mission. Uh, that's the balloon transportation system, for those who are unaware. Camilla SDO is the Solar Dynamics Observatory mascot, who is a rubber chicken. <laughs> Astrofuzz Fuzz represents uh, Bears on Patrol, and is a teddy bear. And Sky Blue represents AIAA and is a, we've been calling Sky Blue a flying stuffed pig. I kid you not.
3: <laughs> well, go ahead Sawyer, this, this is a fun story, but go ahead.
2: At last check, after their last launch, they ended up in the Sabine Wildlife Refuge in the swamps of Louisiana. At the time, we had no idea what was going to happen to them, but a few days later, they were found. In fact, uh, they still had some cupcakes left that they had with them as survival guide, (laughs) as survival gear.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I understand, too. They had to spend some time in, quote, quarantine, close quote, because some of the lovely – uh, Louisiana swamp water kind of seeped into the uh, Inspiration One capsule, and unfortunately, it kind of did a number on our our knots there, as you're calling them. And uh, but uh, they got through it, and uh, uh, but they had to spend they had to do their time in, in quarantine. Right. But in there- Camilla's uh, recent recap on
2: the mission, uh, she stated that uh, they, as it started to seep in, they ended up just hopping out. Lighting a fire, and uh, singing campfire songs. I kid you not, I can post the link in the show notes to the article.
3: This is just too ridiculous. There's an interesting side story to this whole thing, though, isn't there, Sawyer?
2: Oh, in fact, there is. Once they were finally discovered by airboat by the Wildlife Refuge people, they were then sent back to uh, their crew quarters. However... (laughs) uh there was a shipping company whose uh name I shall not mention but I will I'll give you a hint it starts with F and ends with Federal <laughs> Express <laughs> Oh ouch go ahead lost the package in Memphis I believe in Memphis Tennessee the package was lost in a warehouse and uh they had to brave the darkness and all of the other wild creatures that were roaming around. <laughs>
3: uh, yeah, but much to uh, much to FedEx's credit, I'll go ahead and you know let the cat out of the bag. Uh, they did work with a Fed- federal Express representative, and they were able to go ahead and 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 eventually find the Inspiration One capsule that was unfortunately lost somewhere in a warehouse. And uh, much to to their credit, they 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 worked hard since it was a a bit of a a public relations event. And uh, hats off to to Federal Express for helping the folks out. They really did, did a bang up job in locating that package.
2: Yes, they found it. And in fact, recently I've been uh, tweeting with the box.
3: <laughs> you thought
2: oh, it? You thought the story was? This can't was get any
3: more weirder. <laughs>
2: Yes, there were uh, two accounts. There was Trapped in a Box and BTS Unboxed, who were created and uh, were tweeting from Memphis, trying to be found.
3: Actually, I think one of those accounts is following me, or following Talking Space, whatever. (laughs) um, Yes,
2: because there's an interesting story with that, but uh, that we will save for another time in the future. They successfully survived the swamps, and uh, they then made it home and celebrated
3: yeah, again this is just to bring attention to uh, a bunch of really really worthy causes out there one is again bears on patrol uh this group goes ahead and uh, gives gives teddy bears to uh uh to police officers, who in turn give these bears to uh, to children who have been through a uh, a traumatic experience, and in a way, this the bear kind of sort of signifies a return to you know a beginning step to a return to normal. Um, so you know if again if if you're so inclined uh, uh, and you still have a couple of shekels lying around that you don't don't need, go ahead and, and throw them their way. Um, the other is for uh, the AIAA, uh, and that is Sky Blue, and that is for their uh, their education outreach programs. So, uh, if you're already a member of that group, you're already paying in, paying for it through your membership dues. So. Uh, uh, again, you know, uh, another worthy cause and another thing to bring to attention. And, of course, our dear friend Camilla, who is the dear mascot of the Solar Dynamics Observatory Program. Again, something that uh, uh, is really, really required and needed in this day of uh, uh, solar events. The, the SDO is tracking down uh, uh, not only going ahead and looking at the sun – uh, from a scientific standpoint, but is also tracking down any solar events that could affect uh, satellites and uh, uh, life here back on uh, back on Earth. So uh, again, uh, hats off to everybody. They brought attention to the uh, to the groups that uh, uh, they represent, and uh, it was a it was a fun deal. Plus, um, they got some pretty good photography too, from from what was it, eighty nine thousand feet up or something like that.
2: Yeah, the cl- it was a little cloudy, but the you could still see the outline of the Earth. It was spectacular.
3: Yeah, so it was it was, it was a good – a fun time was had by all. So,
2: And I have to admit, I think Sky Blue is cute.
3: <laughs> I love the mascot, Flying Pig. Nothing's impossible.
2: Exactly. It just goes to show that. So we will look forward to their next attempt, hopefully in the future. And uh, welcome back to the crew. They now get a well-deserved rest before they go on their media tour talking about their successful mission. did we make it through the story actually yes we did i think we did (laughs) wow it's a funny story but it's definitely for great causes and educational awareness so I, i have to give the whole bts1 team huge credit for that speaking of huge credit huge credit is due for you for joining us and to everybody on the Talking Space
3: team, including Gene McCulka. Thank you, Gene. Yeah, again, uh, I want to thank this team and anybody that had uh, anything to do with, with the uh, live broadcast we did on Monday. Um, it couldn't have happened with, with the help from a lot of people. So, um, again, thank you to everybody that helped out with that. And thanks to everybody that's sitting on this panel right now. You guys were fantastic.
2: Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman.
3: Thanks,
0: and also a uh, special uh, kind of an apology, I guess. Anybody that was on site that was part of the tweet up for, for the first launch attempt and, of course, the second actual attempt where Endeavor did fly. If I didn't get to say hello to you, apologies. It was kind of a busy time and look forward to meeting you sometime in the future.
2: And thank you all for joining us, Gina Hurlihy.
1: You're most certainly welcome.
2: Again, thank you for joining us. We once again have to thank everybody for their help with our live STS-134 broadcast. And I think we're going to have to do that again sometime then. One more left. One more left and we will be there. But that's another story. In the meantime, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us and have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are and no endeavor.